Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. My name is Brian Cook. With me in the studio today, I'm delighted uh, to introduce Dr. Emily Finlay. Emily is an, a research associate at Monash University. Um, her PhD was on the works of uh, Maurice Blanchot and Georges Bataille and is called Inappropriations. Emily is also the editor of the Journal of language, literature, and culture, and is currently uh, continuing uh, her work on Maurice Blanchot. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me on here. You're most welcome. Um, Emily, uh, you know what the first question I'm going to ask you is. Emily, how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, um, I would say that it's not so much philosophy that's ruined my life as uh, as working on Blanchot um, <laughs> in particular, um, and I, I have a, a kind of a different answer to the last time I spoke to you about this, um, I've been thinking about it. Um, uh, I think that Blanchot um, really encourages, encourages us to, to look at um, work as unfinished and mm -hmm. to kind of try to sacrifice ourselves for the work. Um, and in that sense, reading Blanchot makes you kind of acutely aware of, um, or, or, or that, that you're never able to sacrifice yourself enough. I think he's a he's a follower of um, of uh, Merleau-Ponty in the sense that um, uh, you know I, I think it's Merleau-Ponty that talks about Cézanne. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it and is, it the is work always yes. being unfinished. Um, and I think there's that there's a sense with Blanchot that that every every Philosophical thought is, is in some sense unfinished and that you can, you, know, you can never quite do enough. So I suppose there's an overwhelming sense of guilt in that sense <laughs> with studying Blanchard. Um, um, guilt being very compatible with, with ruination. Yes. <laughs> um, well. <laughs> okay, okay, so Emily, how did, you, how did you come to Maurice Blanchard, this ruinous figure with his, his um, visions of sacrifice and unfinished works? Um, well, I began reading him when I was uh, studying creative writing, actually, hmm. and I was a second-year student, um, and I I hadn't read very much philosophy um, at that point, and I um, I read an essay of his called *The Ease of Dying*, and I was really um, amazed and intrigued by it because I couldn't understand a word that he was saying. Hmm. Um, uh, and I mean, the, the essay ended with with a line. Um, that reading writing is the play of the necessity of an indifferent difference and um, that kind of captivated me and I've never forgotten it and mm -hmm. so I went on to write and to do an honest thesis that, uh, later on that, that w tried to address that in Blanchard. I think I've never stopped working on him. Uh, and, and perhaps <laughs> still provoked by that line. By that Possibly, line about yeah. That. yeah. Um, <laughs> do you... Uh, if it came out of creative writing, which is, um, did you make a shift from something more practical to more theoretical? Was Blanchard originally uh, an inspiration on your writing practice in creative writing, or did he f necessitate a shift towards uh, theory and philosophy? I think he necessitated a shift mm. um, because, well, I, I, I began to read philosophy in order to, to understand Blanchard in the first place. Um, and I think he also made me hesitant in a way, you know, writing creatively in a sense. Um, How interesting. Which is um, um, hesitant to, 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 to 
assert a voice, I suppose, in a certain um, um, when writing creatively. Um, I, I stopped writing creatively in favour of writing on Bon Show. <laughs> <laughs> That's an, an interesting sacrifice that you would have um, you have made in in his name. What what was it? Uh, do you think? Can you articulate um, uh, what it was that made you make that sacrifice? Like how how did he make you uncomfortable with the idea of your voice as a creative writer? Mm. That's a very difficult question <laughs> to mm. answer. Actually. It might be a difficult, like too probing psychologically, but it wasn't. It wasn't from something doctrinal. It wasn't from a specific theoretical idea. That no, you got, I yeah. think um, certainly. I think in the, maybe in the idea of, of um, that that he encourages a, a fragmentation of 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 voice, um, mm. and that. I mean, I, when I was when I was studying creative writing, I, I was writing very um, as one does in their early twenties a lot of the time, very autobiographical, yes, kind yes. of um, driven lyrical works. Um, and I think that Blanchot kind of shattered that for me as a as a mode of writing, um, because there's a, there's a certain erasure of subjectivity that becomes very important in Blanchot. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, he talks about, and you, you, you talk about it with great eloquence and at some length in your in your thesis and other publications, this idea of of the purpose of literature being, in a sense, the, the, the di- its own disappearance, mm. its, its disapparition, its mm. at the disappearance of the work and the disappearance of the, of the writer. Mm. Um, uh, how do you... How do you understand this this notion in Blanchot of literature as something that heads towards its or, or aims towards its own disappearance? Um, yes, well, he's, it, you, it's a very very nice paraphrase of Blanchot. In fact, that you just gave, he says literature is going toward its essence, um, which is disappearance. And I think that um, that that movement toward disappearance is, is really to do with communication um, mm-hmm. in some kind of bizarre. It paradox, seemingly paradoxical sense, way, yes. Um, I think because we use literature, um, or according to Blanchot, we use literature because we are um, enabled to fully, unable rather, to fully communicate. Um, uh, and, and if we were able to communicate, if we were able to have absolute communion, we wouldn't need literature. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that there is a... Um, and I should say that literature is, is not just not just the literary work, but also the philosophical work, um, and within Blanchot. Yes, um, yes, indeed. It's, it's kind of the written the written word that lasts, um, kind of acts at once as a barrier between people and as a, a point of of communion. Um, so, for example, if I if I when I write, um, I might have a certain intention by writing, but mm. when you read what I've written, um, you probably going to interpret it in a slightly at least different way um, and so while it enables communication of sorts it um, it also uh, prevents or, or it also exists because that communication is impossible right um, as a barrier it, it, it's also a point of, of, of um, potential communion in that neither of I mean for example, neither of us could exist within the written word, um, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a reader and writer cannot exist within within the written word. Both um, 
that there's an intentionality that they each bring to bear on, upon the written word, yes. perhaps, but yeah. But that intentionality dissolves. Um, that well, it's 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 not not part of, of the written word. Yes, right, 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 right. Um, yes. Yeah. There's a yeah. There's a. I mean, there there's an interesting paradox here. It, it it's in, because on the one hand, Blanchot seems to oppose literature to communication. This is something that can seem like a sort of inheritance and commentary on Mallarmé, like the distinction mm -hmm. between literature and journalism or, mm -hmm. or um, literary language and everyday language and so forth. But um, uh, you are saying, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that it, even though literature is opposed to the idea of uh, communicability, that language mm -hmm. is transparent. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of because rather than despite this that it opens up the possibility of communion, right? It's because yeah. it rejects communication that it opens the possibility of another kind of community, communion, communication. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. I think very much so. Um, yes, it's very much, I, I think, it, it, it's, it's not only the recognition that, that language is a barrier, but the desire to... Um, to use language to transcend that, um, mm. so it's it's a kind of uh, preservation of impossibility while seeking the impossible. If that's yes, yeah. yes, yes, to, to yes. seeking um, um, to seeking to transcend the barrier through the barrier, which yeah. which you're necessarily which you necessarily you can't traverse. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's fascinating, and it brings me because I because I asked you originally about philosophy and the the question about philosophy ruining your life, and you mentioned you mentioned Blanchot and literature instead. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, maybe for um, my audience, Blanchot is 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 read in philosophy departments and in in continental philosophy. But he has a um, he's strangely positioned in relation to philosophy. I mean, mm. there's there's this category of of criticism in which you could put a number of his works. He's also a literary writer, mm -hmm. and um, one of the things that I was uh, very struck by um, in your thesis the first time I looked at it was um, you invoking some of Blanchot's definitions of criticism around, you're saying, some uh, motifs of what he, what he does with citations. Mm -hmm. So citation as a form of appropriation mm -hmm. that is also disavowed insofar mm -hmm. as you when you cite something, you appropriate it, but you also say, no, it belongs to someone else. Mm -hmm. Like, you put the footnote, no, this is, these are not my words, these are Maurice Blanchot's mm -hmm. words. But uh, you talk about how Blanchot does this. He will cite Herdelaine or Lautremont mm -hmm. or, or Mallarmé, but, and so that simultaneous gesture of appropriation, like, mm -hmm. I, I take these words but also, and, and disavow, but then he will add another sort of seemingly appropriative element where he changes mm -hmm. the apparent quotation mm -hmm. from from the the text yeah the, the appropriation is a, to me is a really fascinating thing in in Blanchot um, because I think he's he's very concerned with the potential to um, perhaps to inflict violence on on um, somebody's thinking and somebody's writing by appropriating the, and by yeah. appropriating yeah. yeah at the same time as um, kind of also being aware that, that, that this is, is a mode of, of writing. I mean, I think that, that his conception of, of language is just a, um, in part at least, as a, a, a re-sifting or recycling of, 
of um, language whereby um, so, so so every every use of a, of a word is is in effect a, a quotation of some mm. description um, mm-hmm. at certain points contend toward a neutrality in in Blanche, um and he he's very interested in ideas of the neuter um, uh, and, and language's capacity to to become neutral um, but by the same token um, there is there's almost a, a kind of pattern to this to this neutrality which is affected by the appropriation of or the recasting hmm. of words in certain ways by different writers um, so I'm really interested in the um, in the way in which language um, the way in which that that, that pattern is is created um, and the, the kind of um, personal responsibility I suppose in um, in, in the appropriation of another's language and the the, um, the use of language in that way. Mm. And I think that the example um, that I think you're referring to is, is Hurdlin, um, the, the example of Hurdlin and the bell. Very, very beautiful um, image. Yeah, a, a definition of criticism. Right? Yeah, 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 which um, it's, it's, it's actually, he borrows the image, I think, from Heidegger. Um, uh, and... His image is, is that criticism is just like a little snowflake um, making the bell toll. Um, and Blanchot takes this and then says, but, but the bell tolls in different ways for each person that, um, in, in each piece of criticism. So criticism, in a sense, is like shining a different light onto, different, onto the work, um, mm. bringing the work into a different light each time, um, each time... Um, or with each work of criticism, with each new work of criticism, and um, I think that 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 is accords really nicely with Blanchot's conception of, of literature um, as something um, as, as 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 something that, that changes each time um, each time it's read in a different way. So yes, the critic is, a, is obviously a kind of vocal reader. Yes, yes. There's yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in this seeming uh, ambivalence of appropriation around the around the question of appropriation in Blanchot, because I mean, a, I mean, it's a focal point of your thesis on on Blanchot and Bataille, um, um, which I mentioned before, is called inappropriations. But but also when you mentioned that the the Blanchot takes the Hölderlin. Uh, image about criticism as this snowflake that's dropped on a bell from Heidegger. Mm. Seems to me Heide- Heidegger often uh, talks about, as in, I, I recall, there's this there's this moment. Uh, Adorno is very um, uh, polemical towards Heidegger doing this, but Heidegger describes. Um, uh, reading Hölderlin, he's talking about the poem, the the Ister, as mm. as um, uh, the, the the task of the critic is to kind of. Um, Walk alongside the poem mm-hmm. like a um, like someone sort of wandering mm. along the banks of the river, and again, it's this this image of of doing no violence by mm-hmm. by by um, in a sense refusing the the gesture of appropriation mm. that the critic won't approve. But um, as, a, as Adorno Adorno actually accuses Heidegger of being an incredibly violent appropriator, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that's interesting about Blanchot's position is that he. It's it's like he simultaneously is concerned about this violence of appropriation, mm-hmm. but also thinks that it's it's necessary that you can't get away from the appropriate uh, from having to appropriate. And that's why yeah. I want to ask you. There's a there's a moment um, in the thesis early in the thesis where you talk about him taking this line from uh, Malame, uh, which the last time uh, we spoke in in private conversation, I, I I kept getting them confused. But the line. 
from Malame is is in fleur, is in fleur. I say uh, flower, um, yes. which Blanchot changes to set femme, like mm -hmm. like I yeah. say this this woman, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, what do you think is is going on with gestures like this, with this kind of like the citation that is appropriative, that is worried about the violence of appropriation, but also. Uh, where the concern about that violence actually leads to uh, what might look more appropriative, like a, a transformation of the of the original. Um, well, I think, um, I mean, if I can take the example of Judith cette femme. Yeah. Um, on a on a linguistic, oh, I was going to answer on the on the. Um, I was going to to answer by saying that. Um, that 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 um, Blanchot's concern there is is talking about a particular woman. Yes, um, yes. It, and and there's, there's a particularity that's being evoked. Um, yeah, at least a in that yeah. Transformation mm -hmm. of, of Malame. Um, so, um, uh, for example, in his rereading of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, mm. um, when Orpheus turns, it's to um, when when Orpheus is, is making his way out of out of the underworld and he, um, he's not supposed to turn around and look at, at Eurydice, um, he turns and Blanchot says that he he wants Eurydice in her nocturnal, kind of almost in her particularity. And yes. He turns and of course that's the moment when he loses her. Yes. And this is a metaphor for the for the act of writing is to seek this this um, to seek that which language can't. Um, bring into the light the, the, the nocturnal. Um, so at that moment, um, yeah. So I think so. I think that um, that Judith cette femme um, really really drives this. Um, that that analogy from Malame really um, reinforces this because um, because it's so concerned. With particularity, and the rest of the the, the line is that I, je dis cette femme, um, I say I say this woman, and I take her flesh and blood reality away from her. I mm -hmm. cause her to be absent, mm -hmm. and annihilate her. Mm -hmm. um, so, this it's a particularly violent line, um, and in the same sense um, as as um, uh, Blanchot's appropriation, I suppose of. of from Malame is to, um, at, in one sense, um, what, to at, at once evoke the line and to destroy it or to replace it or to yes. To speak of a particular woman, um, in the sense that, say, Naval tries to speak of Aurelia, or mm -hmm. perhaps Dante speaks of Beatrice, Beatrice speak yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of, to attempt to to capture the essence of a of a particular woman is to um, to do violence to that essence, yes. which you're trying to preserve. And I mean, there's there's something that's probably incredibly misogynist about this sure, 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 characterization. Um, and it's drawing on, quite obviously, on the tradition of, of, um, of, of the absent woman in French poetry. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and certainly accords with, with, for example, Levinas' position on, on the woman as the absolute other, mm. um, which 
to both eyes, so critical eyes. Yes, yes, um, rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, when we speak of appropriation, particularly in this way, I'm glad you, you mentioned Aufhebung, both because I think it, it gets to that um, paradox of, of simultaneous destruction and preservation, right? Like, mm-hmm. is, is when you, um, when you dis- when you say singular in language, like, this mm-hmm. is something that, that Hegel points out very early mm-hmm. in the, in the phenomenology that, that when you try in the, the famous uh, opening, that when you mm-hmm. try to, um, after the, after the introduction, the first chapter on sense certainty, that when you try to, um, to, grasp the singular right mm-hmm. um as in the way that a romantic poet might do you you, you mm-hmm. take a position where you're like no wait the concept the concept being general does violence to the particular so i shall mm-hmm. try and just find a way of grasping the particular but for hegel when you do that you're left with the empty concept mm-hmm. so an example um, would actually be the word singular or singularity, right? When I say, when I try to say, you know, here is this, here is a flower, here is this woman, like in her sort of ineffable mm-hmm. singularity. But in doing so, I use the word singularity. I use the word ineffable. They're general, and so they actually betray the singularity in the in the moment of grasping it. But it 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 seems to me from what you're saying that for for Blanchot. We're talking about things being afgehoben. We're talking about afhebung in a very, um, you know, in both senses of the term. That he's both worried about that violence mm. the concept does to the singular. Um, he has the same recognizes that literature has this this the same desire as Orpheus that mm-hmm. it can't, um, uh, you know, that it it wants it wants Eurydice as a nocturnal being and not a being of the light of mm-hmm. the concept, and yet. Or if music, but being mm-hmm. office, office, yes. what is it like? One sorry, it's, it's, it's silence so, and darkness, yeah. um, but has to express it in uh, through music or through mm-hmm. light. But there's something that there's there's something that does preserve what is lost in the in the song. Do you think that's true? Is that overstating it? Um, I think no. I don't think it's overstating mm-hmm. it at all. Um, and and I I mean I think that that Hegel is is so central in the mm-hmm. chapter on sense certainty. Yeah. is is. Um, I mean, particularly the, the thing that's that's lost within the phenomenology itself <laughs> indeed, um, is, is is really crucial to to Blanchot's own work. Um, but I, I would say that um, that what is retained um, when Orpheus um, when Orpheus turns and mm. tries to bring that nocturnal um, Eurydice into into the light, or or Blanchot says in, into the song, and so he's translating mm. the song into the poem. I think metaphorically. Mm-hmm, at least, um, she's retained, but also, but also, um, still submerged in shadow. She's retained, but also ultimately um, lost, lost completely. Yeah. Um, in the same way that that um, you know that, that Beatrice just becomes a, an emblem of, of Beatrice, for example, to return to Dante. Yes. Or, or um, um, I think in in Naval, the image of Aurelia, Aurelia is that she. Um, She's she's kind of made up of of bits of um, of women, um, different hmm. arms and legs and, and limbs of, of different women at one point. In that, so so there is a um, she's a, so so Eurydice in within Blanchot's reading um, is then is turned into um, it's turned into merely song. It's, it's turned into merely a, a, um, um, the signifier of of herself. Um, hmm. 
Yeah. So there's there's mm-hmm. mutilation still yeah. of the as an as an yeah. there's mu- mutilation yeah, going on. Just yeah. what you rightly mentioned the the potential misogyny of this of this tradition of these yeah. of these singular like I say the poet says the woman is singular and ineffable mm-hmm. but all the more to reduce her to a sort of a cipher a sign mm-hmm. a, a concept so um, yeah actually actually on that note so so two thoughts I mean one in a moment I want to ask you something about uh, Alexander Kozhev and his mm-hmm. importance for, for Blanchot um, mm-hmm. uh, and for and for Bataille actually but before I, I do as a sort of linking um, question the the issue of the violence of the concept and speaking of Hegel um, reminds me I think because um, uh, Kevin Hart is a is a fairly famous mm-hmm. Blanchot scholar and he um, he pops up a number of times in his thesis and I remember him uh, quoting in his first book on on Derrida this uh, line um, from Hegel's uh, philosophy of religion where Hegel refers to the tradition of Adam naming the animals mm. and therefore introducing the possibility of death into the mm. of death into the world because because with uh, once you have the word lion or yeah or um, uh, as I think you mentioned with uh, different references dog and cats mm. lions dogs and cats um, the the sign outlasts like has the potential mm-hmm. to outlast the particular thing which grants it a sort of perverse kind of immortality that's predicated on the the death and uh, I think maybe because um, uh, some of the first encounters people have with Blanchot I think is often this very famous essay called literature Mm -hmm. in English literature and the right to to death I was wondering whether you could say anything about about how death relates to this this issue of of, um, uh, the limits of Conceptuality and trying to speak mm-hmm. the singular or, or to give voice to silence or these other kinds of Blanchot because it's very much caught up with death for Blanchot, is it? Not yes. writing. And yes, absolutely. Um, I think that death is, is is really important in Blanchot because it, um, in part, um, that, well, because as you say, naming announces the mortality of. of of the object, in, and I mean, Blanchot refers in literature and the right to death to Adam's naming mm, of the mm. animals um, in that sense. Um, but also, um, I think the idea of, of one's own death is is potentially important as well within Blanchot because that's the moment where the subject um, disappears, where I'm no longer able to say I. Yes. Um, and death is also the thing that. that um, that that we is is also impossible to experience from the position of an eye, I suppose. Yes. Um, so um, that that particular impossibility of death um, makes it makes it, I think, fascinating to Blanchot as the moment of potential. It's it's analogous in, in this. It's analogous to communication hmm. in a way, um, in a in a very strange way, um, in that. That it, it um, signifies the loss of the subject, um, and that it's something that human beings have in common, I suppose. And because it's bound up in language, um, well, because a language is bound up um, with mortality, because language announces mortality. There is a relationship between language and death, in that sense. Um, but I, death is also quite. Pivotal for mm. Bataille, obviously, um, in terms of sacrifice, and um, so in, in, in watching another's death, 
we he says that we become um, we experience continuity. Um, we, we become open to to an experience of community through sacrifice, um, through the proximity of. Um, I, I, it's almost almost as a um, um, the vicarious undergoing of death through the witnessing of, of sacrifice. Um, yeah, which I find. Again, I mean, I think that, that, that in that in such a situation you have um, that the, the in such a situation the, um, the the significance of of the sacrifice is is more for the the witness than the the victim, and I think there's something possibly a little bit dodgy about. That. <laughs> I mean, Bataille's fascination with the Chinese torture victim the photograph, um, for example. Um, I, yeah. Is it because he thinks dying is um, uh, is is something, or rather that death is something that we can never experience, so that it can only be experienced yeah, by vicarious? But, but you're concerned, um, or I have to say you're concerned that, I mean, Broccio tries very hard, I, I, I think, mainly from, from your work, to to avoid a, a notion of community, which I think he, he describes as being mythic, that um, in its in its closure would would necessitate sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That that mm -hmm. would be predicated on sacrifice. I imagine Bataille Bataille's reading um, uh, is connected to college de sociology, yeah. right? Reading okay, like stuff so, about yeah. um, about about the importance of sacrifice for um, establishing communal. Bonds, but I imagine maybe for both of them, but certainly for for Blanchot, that yeah, there's something that can sound a bit a bit fascist of this. Like, what yeah. do we what do we need to to burn, or we can sort of witness the spectacle of of murder and thus feel yeah. you know like more bound to each other through that. That's something. I think well, well, Blanchot, yeah, Blanchot moves much more. Uh, Blanchot is much more concerned with with language than Bataille yeah. in that sense, and with the, the the possibility of of both community and sacrifice in fact to be enacted um, through language instead of right um, which I mean I, I mean obviously Bataille uh, the story of the eye <laughs> there are certain enactments very different enactments um, of, of sacrifice and, and community um, within those texts and um, we don't have to go into into Bataille too much but um, uh, your thesis does explore the relationships between Blanchot mm -hmm. and Bataille, this very ambiguous relationship that you mentioned is, uh, you know, we're lacking a lot of the biographical details about when mm. they actually met yeah. or did Blanchot go to Kojov seminars. But I think one thing that is clear and that you bring out is the, is the influence of Kojov in, in, mm -hmm. different, in different ways. Um, and I suppose, yeah, there are a number of, of motifs there, I suppose, so Kojov um, is... is appropriating mm -hmm. um, as you as you rightly point out Hegel it's a very in some ways idiosyncratic mm -hmm. anthropological um, reading of Hegel but at which uh, in which uh, the relationship between humanity and animality which is something mm -hmm. that I know I know you have worked on both in the thesis and more on more recently is is central like a relationship between animality humanity um, uh, desire, knowledge, and language—all of which I think are the, the sort of fundamental terms of your yeah. thought, in some ways that, that keep uh, keep returning to. But, but first of all, what do you think? It, what do you 
think it was a four blanche show that was that was so um exciting about Kojev, despite the fact that he obviously also takes this distance from from Kojev, so. um well i mean i i think I, I he i mean obviously he read hegel in the german um and he was acquainted with with hegel before he came to Kojev. right right he didn't um, wait for Ippolit's translation or no, like so many no, french he people could, like yeah right. he could read german so yeah, he, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but 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 Bataille, um, yeah, and he didn't attend Kojev's oh. lectures. Um, but Bataille was extremely excited oh. about the, the lectures and um, and wrote to after he met Blanchot, um, wrote to Cano and asked him to forward the um, the proofs to Blanchot to read. Um, and they appear in so he references to them appear in literature and the right to death for the first time to Kojev's. Um, Lectures, and I think um, that the Kojev can be traced through Blanchot's thought, um, particularly from from the late forties onwards, in in, um, in really interesting ways. Um, one of which is is related to Kojev's conception of discourse, um, mm. uh, which obviously would appeal to Blanchot, um, and which is is um, kind of constructed differently in Kojev, obviously to to um, language in Hegel. Um, so he, so Kojev, um, there are two different types of, of desire um, in Kojev. There's animal desire and human, oh. human desire, obviously. Um, and animal desire um, negates by consuming. Yes. Um, and human desire essentially negates by negating the given in favour of an idea. Yes. Um, which becomes, so these ideas become within Kojev eventually kind of discourse. Um, uh, which um, man creates, using Kojev's term, man creates um, by by negating the given world as it is and by negating nature. Um, I think what is interesting to Blanchot in this is that, um, that, that there's a potential totality of discourse being um, outlined by Kojev um, and, and um, so he Kojev famously goes to um, America and um, <laughs> says that he um, says that, that that history has ended when he goes um, and and um, that language that that, that that Americans are basically speaking um, the language they're speaking is like the buzzing of the bees it no longer has any any meaning so it's it's kind of um, the apex I suppose of, of, of discourse where where meaning has has cancelled. Um, has cancelled itself out. Where oppositions in meaning have, um, where, where um, for every every utterance there is a there is a, a an opposite utterance that that annuls it. Um, in a sense, I think is that making any sense? It is. It's, it's, so uh, this is this is something that I was wondering about actually. So the the passage on the the sort of uh, post historical mm -hmm. discourse where where language becomes like that of bees. It so if it's connected to the the idea of the end of history and mm -hmm. and so um, uh, human desire is is recognised. Mm -hmm. So so the the human being is in the the state of the title of one of Blanchard's stories of the last man mm -hmm. and Nietzsche's yeah. uh, line, which interestingly, um, by the way, I, I I found out years later is um, is also that that line of Nietzsche's about the last man is mm -hmm. also a reproach that. Um, Leo Strauss, the um, um, f 
philosopher who was friends with Kojev made to Kojev's idea of, of, of man at the end of history. He said, is this not like the world of yeah. Nietzsche's last man? And, and Kojev just said, yes, like, you know, it, as in, except I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Of course it is, but you mm. want to be a Platonist and stuff. Anyway, putting, putting Strauss aside, so this, this idea of the language of bees or the discourse of the bee-like discourse mm -hmm. at the end of history, which um, I think various uh, thinkers have, have mentioned Agamben and, mm. and been fascinated. I mean, what, what intrigues me about this is the idea um, and I wanted to ask you about this, is is, is this discourse of bees that of a, a kind of pure communion? Because it's, it's like, on the one hand, it seems like a reversion to animality, mm -hmm. right? um, in the way that Kojeb's, as you mentioned mm -hmm. in your thesis, that, that the state of absolute knowledge kind mm -hmm. of involves a reversion to, to animality. So that's one image mm -hmm. that you could have in your mind. Uh, it looks like that. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, it's it's like is it is it a communion or is it the impossibility of communication? Because it seems like mm -hmm. language is no longer conceptual; it's no longer negating mm -hmm. in the Kujerian sense. Yeah. It's no longer doing any work of the concept heading towards absolute mm. knowledge. So it's, it's no longer negative. And then, it, but if it's like the language of of bees, yeah, does that does that? I mean, is that is that tragic, in a, or, or is that or is that utopian? And this this may not be a useful um, aside, but just uh, something our, our mutual friend uh, Justin Clemens, I know, has, has written a, a paper on Lacan, who's also very influenced by Kojev, called uh, "Man is a Swarm Animal," and it's about reading the pun of Lacan's of listening to how you would say in French the S1 in okay. Lacan's formula, S1, um, S1 which uh, Justin reads into it the word swarm, right? And I, I wonder whether, you know, this could be an allusion to, 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 uh, to. <laughs> uh, to yet another language of discourse of bees. But yeah, what, what, is, what is the deal with the, the discourse of, of bees? Uh, I mean, particularly for Blodshow, right? I think, like. So I think it, I think, um, that that Kojev's language uh, at the end of history is is not not certainly not utopian really. Um, although on the on the one hand, it, it it's it's the goal that language seeks, mm -hmm. as you say. Um, but on the other hand, um, it, it affects a, an interesting kind of detachment between um, humanity and language, um, right? Yes. Which I think accords with Blanchot's conception of literature as, as an indifferent medium. Um, mm -hmm. that talking about before um, uh, and of course Kojev kind of naturalizes this at the end of history he says that that um, well and that, that that language is a product of the human and that, that language yes, becomes yes. Um, so he, he, he naturalizes up. For, for most of his um, most of his dialectic has been about um, negating negating nature in favor of, of language Yes, but in the end, he kind of does an about face and says, "Well, language is natural too," and um, right, and um, collapses the distinction that he's he's built up. Um, right. So there's a right. return. There is a return in that sense to to animality, um, and I think that this is um, this is really interesting in, in Blanchot's work um, and and plays out in one of his. Uh, Early novels called um, *The Most High*, *Le mm. Troyo*, um, in which there is a kind of Kojevian end state. Um, there, there, there's a kind of enigmatic law that's referred mm. to, through which, which seems to be controlling and um, and ordering and um, I don't know, uh, ordering the state. 
Um, but within this state, there's also this, there are, there are things. There's, there's a separation basically um, that's been enacted or affected between um, between the particularity of, of the subjects within the state and um, and their their function as subjects within the state, I suppose. Um, so, can I explain it? Um, so, for example, there are there are these kind of little bubbles of um, of um, dissonance that, that that come up between the, within the ordered veneer of the state. Um, there's a um, the lead character Zorge. <laughs> he has a sister who um, who has a tapestry up in her room, and the tapestry um, has, there's a picture of a of a an angry horse that's <laughs> trying the, 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 the weave is kind of decaying and um, um, but this horse is, is kind of howling through this tapestry right. um, as something that, that has almost been effaced and erased by its image and huh. so there are these beautiful kind of moments um, within within the book um, uh, there's a toad that, that sort of affixes itself to Zorge's face and, and um, almost um, get the he it's in the room with him at a certain point and he's, he's worried that he's breathing the same air as this toad. So wow. there's, there's all these kind of strange animal images that, hmm. are, that have... And, and there's no room for these, these animals within the... They're, they're looking... They're trying to shoot dogs, I think, from memory. Um, they're, trying, they're trying to get rid of the... the, um, the um, kind of mangy, unwanted animals that are, that are roaming through right, the, right. The, the, the end state. So... I mean, I've gone way, way off topic, um, but but I think what one of the interesting things that this this book does is to kind of play on on the notion between the the, the kind of structure um, of of human ideal, um, the construction of a human ideal, and the the, the the fracture that that enacts between nature and and reality, and also particularity in a sense that. Um, that 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 problematizes. Um, yeah. Hmm. These very um, Kojavian themes, like mm -hmm. like to be exploring. But what, what does Bonchu do with this this story? So uh, as in, so that's the that's the setting. That's mm -hmm. the that's the that's the kind of initial state. But then you mention these bubbles of dissonance coming mm -hmm. up, and then I think uh, you mentioned that this this in in uh, the story. There's this. Um, they they state explicitly someone like Zorga's uncle says, uh, you know, um, any any transgression will always be on the side of the law mm -hmm. or something like that. So so the law is all appropriative or the, yes. the human network appropriates everything. The mm -hmm. language seems to appropriate everything and yet mm -hmm. bubbles of dissonance, yet, figure of yeah. the animal and somehow this relates to the figure of uh, Le Trésor, the, the Most High who is mm -hmm. not or at least not what we would expect, which would be God from mm -hmm. from the title. Yeah. It's a it's a title that evokes uh, God, but something different happens. Right, the, the the Most High in this book is is possibly still God, but but not the God we would expect. Not a sort of transcendent. Mm, not necessarily. No, it's a, well. I think I think it's it's possibly. Um, 
it, it, it's a god in the sense of, of Levinas's conception as well of the trio of, of altrui, of the, the other. The other. Yeah. Um, so, um, the, the, and, and the, the position of, of the, the character who is the most high in that sense seems to um, alternate throughout the text. Um, uh, so the, the, the character Zorge moves through the text um, and he um, has a number of relationships with different women um, mm. throughout the text um, predicated on, on desire um, and there's one particular woman toward one of the ones toward the end um, is a nurse mm. Jean and um, uh, there's a, so, so in Levinas's conception of the Most High, um, or is it, sorry, Levinas's conception of Altori, which is is it, um, uh, when when I'm face to face with the other, I'm face to face with with the other as the Most High. So I re should relate to the other um, as though I am relating to God in the sense that that I need to place them as always above and beyond me and as unknowable and enigmatic and to preserve that enigma um, rather than doing violence on it um, yes. uh, in the sense that perhaps we're talking about as well with um, Judith Set Farm. So rather than, yeah, um, I'm a, I should speak to the other, not of them in another sense yes. as well. Um, which of course you can't do um, if you're trying to um, encapsulate the other in, by writing a poem or mm, mm. Um, writing of the other. Or, or objectifying the them with yeah. your desire or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think that this, um, within, within um, Blanchot's The Most High, this is really, um, this approach to the other is problematized. Um, hmm. And um, so, uh, I think probably the best example of this is when um, Sorge and Jean come face to face at a certain point and he says um, in very Levinasian language that she suddenly becomes extraordinarily visible to him. Um, he rapes her, which um, so, so when she, she is positioned as someone who should be um, beyond his capacity to harm and um, he, he should have an ethical response to. Um, his response is to attempt to control, um, to control her. And of course, um, in, yeah, I, I, I think this is, this is really fascinating in Blanchot because it, it, um, it's, it's such a horrifying thing to no, do to, um, to Altrui. Mm. Um, but I think I think it also points to, um, oh, oh, uh, points to something in, in Blanchot's reading of, of Levinas that, that suggests that that um, that Levinas's understanding of, of the approach to the other is maybe too ideal, or, um, to be to be realistic, or, 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 or in a sense so ideal that it that it possibly becomes naive, right. um, or that it risks naivety. Um, so, um, does it risk complicity even with the with the kind of violence that it 
but this is Levinas's ethics in Blanchot's vision with the kind of violence that it explicitly abhors, right? So the, the idea would be in the face of the other, I'm I'm held hostage, like the mm -hmm. other, this mm -hmm. ethical imperative yeah. not to kill me and so forth. And Blanchot's character does the exact opposite of this, in, in, like does a, a truly vile mm -hmm. kind of ethical act. And I'm, maybe this is me um, reading too much into what you're saying, but I, if we if we go back to where we started on the question um, of him seeming not to like to both see a problem with violent appropriation, but mm -hmm. also to see a problem in the uh, refusal of that a kind of um, like a Heideggerian Gelassenheit that there mm. can be violence in the letting be. Mm -hmm. I wonder. I mean, are you saying that that he he thinks that there's maybe even a, a kind of complicity in that, like making? Also, I'm thinking of the history of misogyny in this sense of yeah. making the other this transcendent, Absolutely. ineffable yeah. thing. But yeah. that that's a that, that that's actually that can be another way of enacting mm -hmm. violence upon the other, as much as uh, as 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 much as the more conventionally appropriative conceptual. Like it's like mm. a double. Bind like like potentially these are both ways of of doing violence to the other. I mean, I suppose I'm what's in my head when I'm saying this. It just occurs to me is I suppose something about the logic of of Orientalism. I suppose mm. that when we mm. you know mm. when we when we make the Orient or whatever into a resource or or something like that and just and just dismiss it and violently impose Western mm -hmm. categories on it, that can be a form of violence. But so too can that kind of. Um, Fetishizing of the exotic, you make some, you make it into a an ineffable mm -hmm. other that we could not possibly understand, and also do colonial <laughs> violence. Yeah, on. yeah. Is, is that absolutely? You, yeah, absolutely. And and I think I mean you mentioned the word hostage and and yeah, yeah. Um, position on the hostage, um, whereby you know that uh, be, being hostage to the other, I think that that um, I. I at least the way that I read Blanchot, and I yeah. should say that you know I'm probably doing violence to Blanchot in reading <laughs> Blanchot in this way, um, and and it's a, it's a very particular reading of Blanchot, but mm -hmm. but um, but that that uh, but I think that that what he's suggesting is that that we need to interrogate that um, that mo moment of being taken hostage and 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 um, look at the potential for for responsibility within that moment. Um, um, I think there's there's also I mean it, it does it does relate to Heidegger in a sense right. as well um, and I mean even you know where Heidegger says that conversation is a gift yes yes um, yes and so you, there, there has to be a position of, of, of being able to give within um, within the idea of, of, of conversation it, it comes from so if I'm, I if I'm if I respond purely passively mm. to you then I'm not offering myself as a gift within that within that you know. Right. Um, so, across there. So, so yes, absolutely. I think um, that that this is being um, interrogated in Levinas, but not explicitly. Blanche is no, never right. explicit. I mean, he does. Where Levinas says um, that um, when I'm face to face with the other, I I'm faced with the interdiction: "Thou shalt not kill." Mm. Um, Blanche says when I'm face to face with the other. Um, I must either speak or kill. Um, so there's a potential right, right. to um, either commune or to um, enact violence against the other, I suppose. So, so, but I think that that is the moment that, and that's in one of 
that's in one of the fragmented sections at the beginning of the infinite conversation um, mm. where there's there's actually it's it's actually in dialogue so it's very difficult to attribute to Blanchot in that sense but I think that's where he gets closest to um, to uh, explicitly interrogating this within Levinas. But then there are moments in, I mean, in his narratives, um, for example, in The Last Man, um, the female character expresses, I can't remember the exact line, um, but, but she expresses dissatisfaction with, with the passive approach <laughs> of the, the, you know, and, and in the same way as you're saying, a, a misogynist, um, a misogynist position of, um, of almost being, um, oh well, of, 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 of being held hostage rather than offering. It's, it's not. Yes, yes, it. yes. No, but there's but there's um, no responsibility or yeah. anything in that in mm. passivity. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's what I'm saying. Um, okay, so I, I have a couple of other um, questions on this. So, so answer just all of these all of these these threads of um, appropriation and inappropriation uh, remind me. Uh, coming back in a different way to the question of, of human and animal, you have a, a paper mm. yeah. um, on um, animal ethics, and mm. uh, and it, it, it's a kind of qualified Blanchot-based defense of anthropomorphism, as I, as I understand. I wonder whether yeah. you could uh, <laughs> uh, uh, tell me a, a bit about that. So, um, just to set the scene, I mean, I. It, it seems to me the paper is positioned against what might seem a, a logical line that one finds in someone like mm -hmm. Peter Singer who would say um, when we're thinking of ethics to animals, anthropomorphism is this block because it makes us think, um, um, you know, uh, cute mammals that remind us of, mm -hmm. of our little babies are, you know, we should treat them ethically because that would be horrible. How could you club a baby seal to death or, or hurt a little puppy or something like that? But kind of screw squids or anything that doesn't, you know, they, they might eat us, who knows, right? But um, but you you problematize this from a, a, a Blanchetian perspective, if I... If yes, well, in, 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 um, in a very similar vein, I think, um, I mean, to, to, to hold the animal as other, as, as um, inappropriable, as, um, mm. um, uh, to say that we cannot anthropomorphize, um, is potentially to preclude empathy with, um, right. with the animal. And I think that, 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 um, that this is really important and that this is something that, that um, I find throughout Blanchard's work in the way of, of um, it, it, you must risk doing violence in a way um, yes. in order to to attempt to approach. Um, in the, I mean, to come back to Hegel, yeah, yeah, to, sure. the, um, to the movement of the of the dialectic. If if, um, if what's being sought is sense certainty, um, the, the the motion of, of, of seeking it is what what um, what drives the entire dialectic. Absolutely right. Yeah. So so it it, it it it's important to have. To, to hold hold the ideal of of, um, of absolute communication or of absolute understanding of the other, even if um, even if some some um, some appropriation is involved and and some violence is involved through that appropriation. Um, 
I, I find yeah. this I find this argument very um, convincing actually like I think it's actually something that I'd like more people to read that obviously you like Blanchot see the problem with anthropomorphism in animal ethics mm -hmm. along the lines I was seeing if it if it means we only um, we can only uh, act ethically in relation mm -hmm. to animals on the basis of, of uh, resemblance to us that, that mm -hmm. that's obviously a, a problem in the same way that um, uh, the violence of the concepts could be a problem or something mm -hmm. like that but I think I think your argument that if you if you uh, remove that um, the ground of anthropomorphism totally if you're too afraid of anthropomorphism you, you potentially end up throwing away the grounds for any ethics whatsoever mm -hmm. that, that, that yeah. perhaps we would just be indifferent to, to animals with zero anthropomorphism where it would be just like they're all different and ineffable so so mm -hmm. screw it, like we might as well. <laughs> well, yes, I'd, I'd say in the most extreme case, although I get wary of, um, it seems as well, it seems almost too simplistic a critique to make, uh, and I mean, of, of Levinas to, in oh, particular, right. to, to, to direct, um, you know, if, if uh, filtering that through um, through a, a critique of Levinas. I think I think the reason why I say simplistic is that, is that there needs to be a... Um, a, a, a tension between appropriation and, and, and preservation of of the, um, the of, of the otherness and inevitability yeah. of, of the animal. Um. I see, and this is something I've I've learned from you in the course of this discussion and looking at some of your work is is the way in which <coughs> Blanchard seems positioned as a kind of neither nor and seems to mm. think that literature can mm. do this kind of between. Um, appropriation and its violence and the kind of self-recusal of that and the, mm. and the contradictions of that position of which Hegel would be the first to point out as we yeah. saw at the beginning but but to sort of simultaneously agree with Hegel and to refuse him to mm -hmm. to accept the necessity of appropriation and to and to and to also but also to try and fight against mm -hmm. it in uh, at, at, it seems that, that for Blanchot there's something about literature that can do that uh, mm -hmm. Sort of eminently, that that literature above all things can can make that simultaneous gesture of appropriation and the refusal mm -hmm. of appropriation, um, um, uh, and so forth. Do you think is is that is that yeah? True? I think I think so. Um, I think perhaps not just literature, but ultimately um, what what he would come to define as fragmentary <coughs> writing uh -huh. as a mode of um, of literature, um, but. I, I, again, um, the term literature is um, is difficult within within Blanchot because it it's not just referring to um, you know Dickens or, mm -hmm. or um, canonical Naval literary or, figures. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, mentioning Naval. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, it, but it, it it can encompass. Um, well, the fragmentary can encompass any form of fragmentary writing. Um, so, then the paper that I gave at the conference mm. recently was was about fragmentary writing, but um, but um, was looking at at Blanchot's kind of fragmentation of of Marx, Marx yeah. um, in response to Althusser. Um, so, so yes, um, and this uh, fragmentary writing, I suppose, for for Blanchot. Um, is something that's not um, is, is is writing that's not um, that, that can't be dogmatic and that refuses its own sense of authority. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's writing that allows for the possibility of, 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 of opposition um, and writing that's necessarily unfinished. So, I mean, and, and uh, that's the sense in which Blanchot reads philosophers in a way. I mean, he takes Hegel, as you mentioned, and, and, um, and uses him while, while refuting him at the same time. Um, so so uh, he sees, I think he, he certainly sees the, the dialectic as, as um, something that, that remains open and unfinished and must necessarily remain open and unfinished in that sense. Contra Kojava. Yeah, contra Kojava. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he... Uh, um, so it's, yeah. So the fragmentary becomes um, becomes a, a, a mode of, of writing um, or of, or of um, responding to to difference as well as um, so kind of almost leaving room for for, for the other's response. Um, There's yeah. I mean, just there are a number of things here. So I mean, in wondering what fragmentary writing is. So I. I mean, I, I think of uh, romantic authors, mm -hmm. and, and particularly the, the, the Athenaeum German romantics, and mm -hmm. uh, Friedrich Schlegel, and, and mm. the, the, the focus on the fragments, and the fragment as containing the totality. But I seem to recall in your paper, this this might be my memory um, playing tricks on me, but um, um, which I'm very glad you brought up, because it, it raised a question I, I want to get to in a moment about Blanchot and, and politics, but um, <laughs> uh, which we'll get to, but um, I, do you, am I right in saying you, you draw a distinction, or Blanchot draws a distinction between the fragmentary and the fragment, that, that fragmentary writing isn't necessarily uh, the, the kind of romantic fragments that we get uh, in some sort of Schlegel, is that, is that correct? Just if you call, I mean, Hegel and Marx do yeah. not seem like no, writers or fragments write, in that no. sort of sense. Um, yes and no. Oh. I mean, um, for, uh, certainly, I mean, Blanchot's later works are fragmented yes, in that yes. sense, and he's he's writing in fragments. Mm. Um, he um, so things like in Le Pau de la and um, mm. and writing the, the writing disaster. disaster. Yeah, yeah I think. But I think that that. Um, his conception of literature um, is of uh, a, 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 a practice of writing, really, mm. that undermines um, the notion of, of their... So in the, and this, is, this would be the sense of the fragmentary um, that undermines the notion of a, of a... that undermines the idea of... of there being um, an, an authority, a thinker having an authoritative mm. position, um, and even a, necessarily a singular position, um, mm -hmm. although Hegel uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, is difficult in this sense. But I think Blanchot, um, I mean, he, he kind of fragments Hegel through through using Kojev and and, and um, through contesting him at right, the same right. time. But yeah, I suppose writing as a mode of contestation is really what I'm, I'm trying to. Um, trying to articulate so that um, so that it, it you know to write on an author is, is or to write to to engage with the philosopher is also to contest the singularity of that philosopher's position position in the sense of, of philosophy um, so to um, 
um, to quote a philosopher or to rephrase or recast a philosopher's thought is again to 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 remove it. So, to, so for example, to 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 quote and borrow from Hegel is to remove Hegel from Hegel and to create another Hegel, yes. <laughs> as it were, that that, that might um, kind of fragment or contest the other one. Yes. Um, yeah. So this sounds, it would seem like fragmentary writing can, like the fragmentary dimension can exist without the, any intention of the, mm. the, the author that you could be Marx because um, you were talking about this this uh, reading Blanchot does mm-hmm. called Liam Marx, a, a mm-hmm. reference to, to Arthur Z to read Marx. You could say um, Marx may have been trying, you know, not at all to be Friedrich Schlegel, but to say yeah. something quite sort of definitive and yeah. asteroid and so forth. But but then you can pull on the different voices mm-hmm. um, that emerge in, in the text. It's sort of polyphony, but also uh, you say also the way it already cites, like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier in, a, in the interview, this kind of. Uh, you said this was in Blanchot, like it's, it's. I, I think it's also in in Derrida. This notion that that any any sort of writing is a kind of yeah. citation. Yeah. You cite the language, you cite the alphabet, but also maybe you, you know, you you self cite the role of the role of others, the role of um, I don't know uh, Rameau's nephew mm-hmm. in in Hegel or Goethe or mm-hmm. something like yeah. all of these yeah. all of these kind of uh, uh, things that look like they're their marginalia mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that, but that are actually central. That, that I've put it in very Derridian sounding terms, but but that are actually central. So mm-hmm. so so um, yeah. So fragmentary writing isn't um, a quality that's conveyed on writing by something like authorial intention. Is is that is that the case? Although yes. one could still write in fragments deliberately yeah, with yeah. the attempt. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or, or rather the rather than the the, the, the fragmentary um, practice inherent to, to writing mm. is that that it that it um, it detaches from from that authorial intention. Um, right. Yeah. And, yeah. And um, and then through the process of, of quotation um, and appropriation and removal of of um, or detachment of certain parts of the work from other parts of the work, and, and the um, placing them into a new context and, and things like that, the rearranging um, of certain works. Um, yeah, you, you, you have a, a kind of fragmentation that is at work in the practice of, of writing and thinking. And yeah. Hmm. So, is there any writing that would not be fragmentary? I think this evokes the the. A point you made earlier about the the expanded definition of literature. So we're not mm. talking about the the, the canon. Like, is this a is this fragmentary potential uh, something inherent to to all writing? Um, yeah, something that I'm I'm thinking about when I'm asking this is I I think very early in the interview I I, uh, I think I mentioned Malome and a distinction mm. between sort of literature and, and journalism, yeah. which it seems to me from what you're saying that Blanchot both takes up but also problematizes in mm. its kind of elitism especially around this notion um, maybe I'm wrong to see this but this is something I'd like to ask you about largely because I've never really understood it not that I'm not that I know much about Blanchard but 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 um, this notion of the uh, of the um, damn it of the of the outside and the and, mm, and the in yeah. as I, I think at one point in your thesis you mentioned you quote Kevin Hart talking about like Blotcher talks about as a murmur but yeah. I think Kevin Hart says something about like equates it to uh, 
um, gossip and, and yeah, rumor, rumor of, of, of yeah. sort of, uh, and you know, if if one were Malame, mm-hmm. one would say, no, no, literature is the opposite of that. There's the kind of there's the kind of babble of journalism or, or something like that. Yeah. And then there's and then there's what I'm doing, like I'm writing the the book or like like the premise. But Blanchot's Blanchot doesn't seem to no. to accept the the firmness of that distinction. So I suppose I'm asking um, 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 two uh, uh, questions. How does that uh, um, literature versus or literature in relation to the outside or the Iliad um, work for, mm-hmm. for Blanchot? Um, how, yeah, how does uh, what's the relationship between literature and and the Iliad? And and second, what does that say about the boundaries of the notion of of literature, does uh, does all writing become literature? Is all writing potentially fragmentary or potentially literary, or are there limits to that? Okay, um, there's, there's so many questions. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. Um, okay, so the, well, um, I've been I've been um, asking that same question oh, right. to myself oh, oh, about good. <laughs> um, about does all writing fall under right. potentially under yeah, yeah. fragmentary? Yeah. Um, and I must say, I, I think I'm stretching Blanchot's conception of the fragmentary here a little too. Um, but I would say, um, maybe if I can return to a kind of distinction um, uh, in, uh, about fra- fra- writing that's fragmentary with the intent to, to be a fragment. Yes, um, yes. And and um, this conception of fragmentary writing or fragmented, the, mm. the fragmentation of of a written work after it's written. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, and it's through its absorption by other writers. Um, so in the first place, I would say that not all writing falls into the former category, um, mm-hmm. into the conce- conception of, of writing as, as a fragment. Um, no, sure. And... and not just because of the, um, you know, the composition of the of the fragmentary <laughs> sentence, the or, um, <laughs> but also I think because I mean that I'm interested in in the um, the fragment as as a response really to um, to writing that that claims um, to have much more of a, a dogmatic association with truth. So perhaps more along the lines of. of Journalism, as referred to by Malcolm. I see, I see. Right. Um, but also political language um, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That, that, that would assert itself as, as um, authoritative. Um, and so the, the fragment, um, the, pra- the practice of fragmentary writing as a response to that um, in Bonchot becomes almost a, um, a um, political um, uh, position, a, a, a contestation of. of of the singularity of, of, of um, an authoritative position, um, which was Blanchot's response to de Gaulle in, in France, um, um, and his response to, in '68 was to was to also look at fragmentary um, was was to to write a series of anonymous fragmentary um, uh, articles for Comité, the student journal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yes, I think it, it, it's 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 almost like a um, a kind of compositional mode of um, of oppositional resistance to use the fragmentary um, against a position of authority in one sense. 
Um, so, but the other sense of the fragmentary, as as um, so, the second sense that we were talking about, as um, in terms of what happens to um, the written word, mm. um, you know, once it's written, I think yes, potentially, absolutely, anything can fall right. into this, um, at least in so far in the way that I read it, um, and and this. Um, I suppose what it's falling into um, is the is the outside um, as characterised by Blanchot, um, which, as you said, um, Kevin Hart refers to as rumour. Or, um, or he said Blanchot says it's an indifferent murmur mm. of, of language. Um, so it's language detached, really, from um, from subject and object, um, and um, detached from. It, it's, it's very close to Kojev's buzzing of the Yes, bees, yes, um, yes. Probably. Um, so it, it, it's language where um, where meaning has, has um, or counter meanings have erased themselves as well. Um, so that's the outside. But then I think the ilia is potentially something different. Uh, Again, that was me screwing um, things no, up. No, no, Sorry, no, no, no. Um, not a, I mean, <laughs> it's... Um, I, the Ilya seems to be what remains on the other side. Uh-huh. I, I mean, so to come back to to those kind of images of the horse in the in the tapestry yeah, that I was right. talking about before. So, what, what is or Beatrice kind of howling mm-hmm. in the, the void of all of the Beatrices? Um, <laughs> Sorry, this is a beautiful image, <laughs> disturbing but um, beautiful. Yeah, but um, yeah. Uh, so, so I think that's that's the ilia, and the, the, there is the there's the outside and the ilia, and both of them are, are kind of equally um, terrifying. Yes, and and, um, and, and <laughs> vacuous in a way. But mm. but um, but then there is the writer in relation to these, or so be it a bit a philosopher or a writer or a. Or a a blogger or you know um, and the writer is it's kind of mediating between these things and and is changing um, changing the outside so the outside then and this conception of the outside as, as opposed to the iliad but both of them are kind of well the outside in particular I think is conceived of as a kind of totality right in itself um, and certainly this is this is has resonance with Kojev again. Um, so it's, it is um, language at, at, at its... Um, well, in, in Kojev, it's language at the end of history. But in Blanchot, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of abstract conception of all written words. Mm-hmm. That, um, and so the, the writer then in writing is, is um, uh, responding to that and taking certain things and, and and also altering that totality so stepping beyond that totality and changing it um, which itself can be a political act in terms of kind of thinking of conceptions of culture as a totality and then the, the possibility of um, of changing um, uh, of, of um, extending conceptions of culture or, or taking um, speaking from a position of, of outside what um, what that culture thought of broadly and as a totality 
speaking from a position of outside that and, and of what it what it potentially excludes. Um, I feel like I've just gone way away from your question. No, on the contrary, that was an absolutely magisterial... I don't think... Yeah, you may not have registered but a magisterial answer to my form, <laughs> to my poorly formed question. Because, no, that's, that's exactly... Particularly this clarification um, about the difference between the earlier and the, the, um, the outside, because it, it, it seems to me... Um, coming back to the slightly caricatured um, Malome figure I was in, that the Blanchot... The, that to the extent that he problematizes from this is what something I get from your answer that the extent to which he problematizes the the sort of literature journalism split is because literature actually intervenes mm -hmm. even by not participating in it or the in the space of the of the outside like can change that murmur which mm -hmm. which might lead to it sort of fundamental like like um the the um, I don't know how you want to the distribution of visibility of what of what can be seen in relation to what can be said. The literature mm -hmm. can can affect that. It can it can displace it, and which maybe makes it more on this um, that it also uh, recovers even as it loses. Going back to office and you really see something of this scary Ilya mm -hmm. uh, um, side of side mm -hmm. of things. The, the the scream of the of the Beatrices and the horses and, <laughs> and, and and so forth. No, that's 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 great, Emily. And so this this brings me, I, I think, to maybe a, a final or, or penultimate question. So I did. I, I did want you to, to ask you something about Blanchot's politics, and mm -hmm. I think we're on the um, very much on the cusp of this because, especially those motifs we talked about earlier around uh, communication, community, communion, obviously mm -hmm. raise um, questions of politics. And I think in uh, the paper you delivered at the conference uh, for listeners, um, Emily and I um, had the pleasure uh, to participate in a, in a conference at the University of Melbourne called 1966 and all that, celebrating, um, examining uh, the legacy of, of 1966 and its relationship to 1968. But in, in your paper on the fragmentary, I, I recall you saying at some point it's that it's obviously sort of uh, prima facie odd to, um, to talk about fragmentary writing with all the nuances that we've talked about as a, a political mm. response because one often thinks that you know uh, the political discourse might require to be to some extent mm -hmm. uh, I mean to the extent that this is possible univocal and assert, you know that, that you don't write equivocal fragments mm -hmm. normally when you write a, a manifesto where you say yeah. you know down with this like mm -hmm. like like we you know um, workers of the world unite you mm -hmm. don't you don't sort of um, write a fragment and and yeah um, uh, your what interests you in in or one of the things that interests you in Blanchard it seems to me is, is precisely how he can think of mm -hmm. um, these practices of writing in relation to politics like mm -hmm. so much so that you just said his uh, response to 68 was writing these fragments for, for comité. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can, can you say something about how um, you would connect uh, fragmentary writing, how fragmentary writing in Blanchot connects to um, his more explicitly kind of um, political commentaries around things like the, the issue of community or the, mm -hmm. the unavowable community? So Blanchot's um, position of, of community and the unavailable community is is bound up with um, ideas of the fragmentary. Uh -huh. um, and this is because um, 
the the fragmentary uh, the idea of the fragment um, opens a, or the fragmentary opens a space um, so writing in fragments opens a space for community um, instead of um, so the fragment being insufficient and and um, and open open ended in yes. a sense um, is, it leaves room for for response. Um, in the first place. Um, this becomes particularly important, um, you know, in the late 50s and 60s, I think, for Blanchot. Um, and, uh, for example, when he writes the, the Manifesto of 121, so the, the um, Manifesto for the Right to Insubordination in Algeria, mm. um, this is done... Um, there's 121 signatories, um, and it's 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 an act of of community um, in response to what was seen as a um, as the absence of valid authority. Um, so community becomes the way a way of contesting um, of contesting authority um, of contesting. Um, Uh, the, legit, the, the legitimate legitimacy of authority, rather. Um, so, in a political sense, um, this is tricky because it also involves potential anonymity. Um, and and Blanchard is actually explicit that that um, uh, about um, anonymity as a political act. And so when he writes for a committee, he, um, he says that, that, that um, the, the articles are going to be both anonymous and fragmentary. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, um, anonymous as a function of being fragmentary in this sense. Um, and so they are, they are um, written to and um, on behalf of and um, by the community in a sense is the... Is the idea um, so? Um, I, I, I mean, obviously there are, there is, as you say, a, um, a difficulty in um, trying to speak politically, um, you know, in a, in a fragmented way, and and as well from a position of, of anonymity. Yes, yes. Um, and this is something that I've, I've been trying to interrogate um, in Blanchot, and as I said before, in relation to Levinas mm. as well. Um, and I think, but I think that you know, the other thing that he says quite explicitly in um, in those articles for Comité '68 is that he um, that the position of anonymity doesn't entail a re relinquishing of of um, responsibility in a sense, and of personal responsibility, and of um, I can't remember the exact line, um, but but it, it um, so so it's almost a, a kind of an extension of I think insofar as I, as, a, as a political and ethical position, an extension of um, one's own responsibility outward. So so that um, through fragmentary writing. I can take responsibility for for things that uh, I'm not necessarily responsible hmm. for, um, while at the same time um, retaining responsibility for things that I'm responsible for. So hmm. it's, it's yeah, 
uh, again in both at once, which is which is a difficult manoeuvre, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe a really important one. I mean, I think maybe I mean maybe I don't know enough about the fields of Blanchet scholarship to this, but in some ways, I think your focus on this is seems to me a kind of really. Um, unique and important contribution to the field, the, this focus on responsibility. So, or, like, people who write about Blanchot write about his notion of community yeah. and the unavailable um, 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 community, and, and clearly, the, you know, from, from what you say, I can see this, you know, you can see the distinction between community as something that one presupposes already exists, that is a totality mm-hmm. like the like the, the outside that is um, that uh, you know that an authority can speak for that de Gaulle mm-hmm. can say we are France or, mm-hmm. or something yeah. or I speak yeah. for all the yeah. free French or something like that and the, a contrast between that and the kind of community that comes into being through writing that might be unbounded mm-hmm. or non-totalizing but mm-hmm. it seems to me that you like this focus on responsibility that I, I think you know came up in our discussion when you were talking about um, uh, Le Trezo and so mm-hmm. forth is maybe something that at least at least I and maybe this is just me not having read enough stuff but have not seen in uh, to this extent in in Blanchot. I think maybe because I think there's a you know there's a facile way and this is something I've learned from you that that if you didn't read Blanchot very seriously and just skimmed about him and I, I'm convinced from a number of sources but particularly from your work that this is that this is totally false you could see some of what he does as a kind of uh, I'll put it crassly to but sort of Talkelian mm. as my friend Robert Bodkarner mm. would say like Pomo excess where it's kind of like what's the most radical thing in the world politically uh-huh. um, equivocation in writing or something mm-hmm. like that but it seems but the work seems much more thoughtful for that for that mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, much more in a funny way philosophical maybe especially because of this notion it's not just that there's a sort of uh, utopian community in the desubjectifying of literature but the idea of to, to combine the desubjectification, a mm-hmm. thought of c- combining, which I'm not sure whether it is you, Emily, or Blotto, but but I like, I think it's an amazing idea. Either. Whether whether it's uh, to combine the desubjectifying potential mm-hmm. of literature as a condition of possibility for a, uh, excuse my sort of Bedouin language for an inexistence community, for a mm-hmm. community that, that that doesn't yet exist or something that's bounds would not be set by the mm-hmm. arbitrary ways we normally bound communities. The possibility of that with a maintenance on individual, like on responsibility, both collective and individual, both for the things that one could normally be held ethically accountable, but also maybe for the kind of things that you know, very, very sort of mm-hmm. topical things that are also like, but how one relates to say the history of indigenous peoples in, yeah, in Australia, absolutely. or these kind of these kind of questions, where is, where the nature of responsibility is is. Mm-hmm. Like is more complicated mm. in, in some ways, and your work seems to me to to uh, make Blanchot a really important thinker of these questions that I almost feel that we lack proper concepts for mm. at, at this stage. Is is that an yeah, accurate? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think absolutely. I think there's there's certainly um, strong resonance, um, uh, and particularly in Australia, as you say, in terms of accepting responsibility for um, for Indigenous. Mm. Um, for our, our history in relation to Indigenous people, um, but also um, I don't in, in 
things like asylum seekers and, and, yeah. and you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, um, for example, the, the petition on behalf of the, um, of, of the right f um, for doctors to speak, um, uh, to, to speak out um, on Manus Island. And yes. Nauru. Um, um, so yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, in terms of um, the construction of, of community, um, I, the other thing that I'd say in response to what you were saying earlier, um, the, 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 the Blanchot's idea of communities is not a community that can be constructed in opposition, so not kind of France under de Gaulle, for example. Mm. Um, it's not... Um, it's not Hegelian in that yeah. sense. Um, it's um, it's a community that that, that that has to be open always yes. to otherness. Yes. So so it's, it's a totality that that, that that must remain unfinished in the, in the Hegelian sense, or a, um, um, a, 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 a a group that's always insufficient, <laughs> that's always um, seeking or welcoming something else into it. Yes. Um, yeah. So, and then the other thing that I, I would say in response to your, to your question and your reference to POMO <laughs> and, uh, is that I think that it's, that that's one of the, um, the really interesting things about Blanchot um, and that's also one of the things that, that interests me um, in studying Blanchot is, that, is, a, is a kind of an attempt to interrogate that, an, an attempt to interrogate the kind of cultural relativism that might come as a consequence of that. Um, and an attempt to interrogate that ethically and politically as well. Um, yeah. As as something fundamentally inadequate ethically and politically, yes. the re relativism yeah. Yeah. Is, 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 is fundamentally inadequate. Like but, but is that in the roots, is what I'm trying to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. is arguably yeah. one of the roots of this. As, you know, oh, sure. And, and I mean, sure. it's hugely influential on, 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 you know, on post-structuralism. And, and yet, yeah, your reading seems, seems uh, to offers a, a, a different way of thinking about that. I mean, I, I think in some ways there is nothing um, with um, uh, the status of European refugees. And I just, I, I was um, told today, um, a friend about some people who listen to this um, uh, podcast in, in Dundee, uh, for people who don't know, um, um, uh, Manus Island is a, um, uh, a kind of disgraceful concentration camp um, maintained by the Australian government to house to house refugees and these these kind of questions around, I suppose, um, sovereignty and the fact that when um, you have kind of sovereign definitions of community, they're always mm -hmm. bounded, they're always predicated on these exclusions, on these kind on um, on these uh, you know Gambellian um, mm. uh, um, zones of. Um, inclusive exclusion where, where things are abandoned by the law and thus fully under the law exposed to the violence of the law um, yeah. in being abandoned by them like this is a space where people's rights are not um, um, the rights given to to uh, sort of citizens of Australia are, are not granted to the mm -hmm. refugees or to, or to Europe and you can have yeah you have the spectre of of, of fascism of, of another holocaust even or, mm. or of something like that in Europe, so it seems to me that these are these are really urgent questions, like how you how you can have a notion of community of of community of not just being atomized individuals, but mm -hmm. but that is also not a um, 
the the bounded, uh, fixed, um, yeah. sacrificial totality of um, of of the communities that we maybe we maybe know. Or, Absolutely, or and and I think as well how how you can use language to um, to to expand the the notion of community and in, instead of creating these oppositions how you can you can use language to to um, affect a space of community that has potentially real world consequences rather than yeah um, I um emily um <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show uh, tonight. That was a that was a really really um, fantastic discussion. I I, um, I have no doubt listeners will benefit from greatly. I hope um, anyone who listens to it encourages other people to to download it. But but yeah, just for uh, for me personally, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me tonight. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, so, and and thank you for this wonderful podcast that you you're running. It's really really good for the philosophy community as well. Oh, you're most welcome. Uh, uh, and unavowable community if ever there was one <laughs> on Stalin construction. Okay. Uh, thank you. You've been a stick of philosophy in your life. Good night. <laughs>